0: Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm Peter McMillan, the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Larakea people. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and 20 other First Nations people who might be watching on this podcast. This is episode three of Sharing the Couch. It's a new initiative at NT Shelter where we get to talk with people across the housing and homelessness sector, both uh, in the Northern Territory and elsewhere. And uh, it's an opportunity really to hear from those people who are leading uh, from the front in terms of making a difference in the housing and homelessness space, making a difference for people who need assistance, the most vulnerable people. And if... You would like to make sure you don't miss out on these episodes, then check out our YouTube channel just by Googling NT Shelter YouTube and you could subscribe and follow the series as we go. We have got a lot of really exciting uh, presenters and speakers coming up that we're looking forward to talking, and certainly one of them is with us today. So I'd like to introduce Brent Warren. Uh, Brent is the Deputy Chief Executive of Housing Operations at Northern Territory Government. Brent's an executive leader with experience in law enforcement, youth justice, social and affordable housing, child protection and family support. This includes extensive experience leading and championing the implementation of reform initiatives in key operational areas. Brent has led regional service delivery arrangements and has lived and worked across the Northern Territory. He brings strong working relationships with key government agencies and community organisations and experience in leading emergency management response, policy development, stakeholder liaison, human resource management, and research and analysis. Brent's had a very interesting uh, history of education as well and roles, and we'll come through. Uh, we'll go through some of that shortly. Brent, um, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much, Peter.
1: I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be
0: on the couch today. No worries at all. We're looking forward to the conversation. So, Brent, maybe we can just start in terms of me clarifying. Are you a Territory boy born and bred, or did you move to Territory when you were young?
1: Yeah, so not quite born and bred. We came up to the Territory as a family when I was, when I was five or six, came up from Victoria and um, standard sort of um, NT story, we were here for a two-year deployment to Nullumboy, which stretched out to about seven years in the end, um, with my dad working for what was telecom back then. Okay. And um, my mum was a nursing aide, so she took up some work at the hospital. So, yeah, not quite born and bred, but I did do my schooling in the Northern Territory, so I figure that's a close second place.
0: I think that almost qualifies you, uh, Brent, uh, as, as a true Territorian, as they say, for sure. Um, so when you were going through school over in Nulamboy, uh, I guess you were you went through high school, you were thinking about what you were wanting to do with your career, and you went uh, to Charles Darwin University and did uh, law and business. Um, what was going through your mind there? I mean, you, you would have had a lot of options, obviously, as to what you wanted to study, and um, what, what attracted you towards the law? Yeah. Um-
1: That's a a good question. And and actually, when I was finishing high school, I um, got seduced by the idea of engineering initially, um, before law. And um, I had aspirations that I might go to the Defence Force Academy and study engineering as part of that kind of program. Uh, A few mates and I had the same idea. Um, The mates all got into the Defence Force Academy, but they told me that I needed some more life experience. So. I went off and um, actually tried civil engineering at Sydney University for a year and didn't enjoy that very much and didn't do very well. So, came back to the territory and decided to jump across into law. And ironically, I'd probably always known that I enjoyed the human services, um, um, you know, the humanities subjects a lot more in high school. So, I probably was ended up doing what I should have done initially, if that makes sense. Sure. But yeah, just always really attracted to. Um, I guess the the structure and the the problem solving of of legal study. It was um, yeah, I really enjoyed getting into that.
0: It's interesting because when I think of police and policing, I don't typically think of government because I I see government more as I guess the, the bureaucracy or the or the administrative side. But absolutely, um, it's public service, isn't it? At, at its core, and um, I guess. Um, the the, uh, the notion of to protect and to serve the community that must be something that you see not only in the police force but in your in your current role as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's there's obviously a separation between what the police do um, just in terms of the, the the legal difference, but I think that that attitude of getting out and being there to work for the community, keep the community safe in one form or another, absolutely translates into the public service, and I think. Um, it's, it's something I've enjoyed in the public service setting is uh, just really seeing the different ways that people subscribe to that service mentality. Um, it, it, even I think people that are really well um, versed in what they're here for and what their department does, they can find that service in a, in a back office job, in a, in a processing role where they can um, really link their part of the business the business of serving the community and and there's i've really enjoyed working in territory families housing community seeing the different ways that people connect their work to the Mm -hmm. the broader service so um yeah it is transferable
0: and how did you get into the into the force uh so you've completed a degree and i know you've continued on with a lot of other um academic uh programs as well in in leadership and in um, international relations as well. You've got an MBA and, and uh, a master's from Cambridge in applied criminology and police management. So obviously that um, area of policing and uh, criminology is is was of interest. How did you, I guess, how did you go from, I guess, being in a, in a law degree where I guess a lot of people would go into the law and be a solicitor or a barrister. You've gone, I guess, into the police direction. What was the how did that come about?
1: Um, it sounds like it should be a noble story, but it's it's really not. I, um, I ended up, uh, I started my degree full-time and ended up being a, a part-time student and a part-time worker. Tried a couple of, uh, you know, the standard post-high school roles. I ran a fast food shop for a little while and uh, worked as a clerk in a law firm because I think that was me thinking that law training was going to take me in that direction. Um, and then kind of, by accident fell into policing there was a recruiting round and um just I was looking for something different and I actually had intended to apply um in the police auxiliary stream and just kind of do that as an adjunct to my study um but a member of my family said to me I oh, why don't you try as a constable as well or instead and I did that and it turned out that they took me in um and, and so I think from there, I, I kind of realized once I was in the work, just how much of a connection there was. And yeah, look, I think as a, as a very junior police officer, I, I wasn't always clear how the legal training um, in terms of university study matched up, but it absolutely did in that it, I think what I've taken in my legal studies is problem solving and structured thinking. Um, and, and that's hugely valuable in a, in a policing context. You know, we're working through, sifting through um, competing evidence um, in an inquiry or even when you start to think about policy development, what, what, what are the different issues that uh, we're trying to tackle as a government or a police service and how, um, how do you match them together in a sensible way, a coherent way that people can read and understand easily. So, mm. yeah, I guess that's kind of where, where the legal training fit into the, the accidental policing
0: Right. Well, that's that's uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, I guess in terms of um, then getting into uh, the education realm and, and and continuing on with your studies, a lot of people would have completed an undergraduate degree and um, and left it at that. And, and you've gone and done a lot of other study. Obviously, education is is uh, is valuable in your mind and important to you. Do you want to talk a little bit about what what the thinking was there? Because it's a big commitment to do all the study that you've done.
1: Yeah, look, um, it's a, thanks for the question. It, it is something that I, I've really been passionate about, is just lifelong learning. Uh, it, did, it did take me... Uh, it took me nine years in the end to finish my undergraduate um, degree program whilst I was working at the same time. So that was, that was a, a bit of a strain once I got into my policing career. But um, I, I think... Yes, yeah, so I've, just, I've just always felt that uh, we, we have to know more about the world around us to do what we do more effectively. Um, And I think one of the things I like to remind myself about is how little I usually know about a subject and how important it is to go and find the people that do know, whether that's um, someone who's done academic research on an issue, whether it's, um, you know, someone who's got lived experience as a victim. Um, If it's, uh, you know, a a practitioner in in a sector organisation that's actually been doing this particular kind of work and, and has this particular experience. So yeah, I think it's just about making sure that we constantly check ourselves about how much there is to learn out there. And, and for me, I just find the structure of a university program keeps me honest and makes me stay on track and it's harder to get kind of distracted and, and, and flick around all over the place with different, um, different lines of thinking. But, um, yeah, I uh, the the, uh, the probably the study that was most fascinating for me was when I got the opportunity to go over to, to Cambridge. Uh, they have a, a police focused program that's about criminology, and a, a great colleague of mine, Jeanette Kerr, had um, had taken the program a, a couple of years before me, and she she um, recommended it to me and and gave me a, um, some information about. Um, Uh, pathways to get onto the program which worked out quite well so that was a chance to go to one of the most famous universities in the world and and even just wandering around the place was um, you know that was a a, a memory I'll never never forget but meeting a, a range of colleagues who are doing similar kinds of work but from all sorts of different places gives you that chance to just check in about Yes, there's differences in the work we might do in the Territory, but there's so much of it that's actually going on in mm-hmm. other bigger jurisdictions and in, and in other parts of the world. So, um, yeah, it's good to get that reality check about what what's different and what's similar just with different people in different parts of the world.
0: And I guess it's interesting, you know, having done international uh, relations as well uh, prior to that and then going to Cambridge, you must, it must kind of be formative in terms of the way you look at a world... Have a worldview and maybe think about what's happening in other places and how we can apply that in Australia.
1: Yeah, certainly. I think um, it, it's yeah, it's easy to get stuck in what we do every day and uh, and get really focused in the you know, the daily news cycle and the and the very localized things that we might be talking about. But we miss the opportunity to learn from other people and see similar work going on elsewhere. So yeah, yeah international relations study for me a big part of my interest there was about understanding the international bodies that are are thinking about and supporting um, service to communities. You know, the United Nations, uh, for example, that structure has a whole lot of um, not just uh, service organisations under them, but actually, um, you know, international covenants, legal arrangements, um, you know, best practice thinking about what, what should be in our mind when we're thinking about how to support people and and there's always points of application um i think i think about the fact that uh you know we're in different parts of my career i've been working with children at risk and you know there's international um international guidance about how to how to support young people there's um uh, all sorts of guidance about how to work with first nations people um and all sorts of information and guidance there about things like what are the minimum um, expectations for people in terms of uh, access to shelter, um, yeah. access to support and education from the government, and, um, and, and and yeah, just really thinking: have I checked everywhere when I'm trying to find out information?
0: Absolutely. And Brent, uh, speaking of territory families, so you moved from you were commander in uh, with Northern Territory Police Emergency. Uh, Uh, Fire and Emergency Services in Darwin, I, I know that you're involved uh, from a law enforcement perspective with some of the issues that were going on around uh, Darwin and, and and kids um there's, there's, for people who are interested there's still there's a, still a video online of you in uniform speaking uh about five kids I think that stole cars or five cars were stolen a little way back and a little bit of mischief on your hands there to deal with no doubt um, and then you went across uh, and took on that role um in, in you and protection and um and and those I guess those um executive roles within Territory families. There are some similarities there, I think, in terms of probably that crisis management and dealing with um, with issues very much in real time and having to put out a lot of, I guess, um, challenges of the day. Do you think your service in the force was has been helpful in allowing you to respond to what's a very difficult area, obviously, in child protection and, and Territory um, families generally? Do you think those skills have been transferable and, and helpful?
1: Yeah, look, look, I do, I, and I think you're right, it's about, um, there's that underlying issue about crisis management or um, uh, issue issue and response that, that comes up, and, and policing is definitely not unique in that. Uh, I think I, I did get a great opportunity to, to sort of uh, practice and refine those skills in a policing context, and I, I think what really uh, was part of my learning in the last few years in police was just being so explicitly clear about how much of that work involved client vulnerable clients who were also in other parts of our broader system um, system response. And uh, I spent a lot of time probably over the last four or five years in my policing career uh, interacting really closely with child protection workers, interacting really closely with the Department of Education um, and working with uh some parts of the non-government sector who were directly involved in providing services. Um, I've, I've often enjoyed sharing the story that uh, when I was working in Alice Springs with police the first time I met um, previous Minister Dale Wakefield was when she was uh, the CEO of the shelter down there All right. and she was ringing up to let me know uh, that we were dealing with a complaint between some of my police staff and some of her social work staff and we both had a laugh together about the sort of entrenched cultures of the two organisations, and mm-hmm. um, and I was it always really pleased me to think that she she was successful in in working with us because she could see both points of view, and I've tried to emulate that um, empathy, I guess, for what the different organisations involved in our sector work have to go through and where their staff are coming from in, the, in their experience with our clients. So, um,
0: yeah, so it's so important, that word empathy, and I guess open-mindedness too. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In, in and we'll get to your, your current role in a bit more detail in a moment, just, but just in terms of attitudes in the northern territory, everyone seems to have an opinion on what needs to be done to address antisocial behaviour or crime or, or kids that might be, um, you know, running amok in, in Alice Springs from time to time. Uh, everyone seems to have, and they can be quite strong, strong responses, and often a punitive uh, response. So I guess it is. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that I, if we have an open Mind as to uh, what some approaches to those um, things are, we can, we can maybe get better outcomes if we've got that open mind and if we've got that empathy.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, always reminding ourselves that there's humans at the centre of the story, usually humans that are a part of a family unit somewhere along the way, um, and that family unit's usually got similar expectations and aspirations to everyone else. Uh, around being uh, sort of safe and secure and thriving. So, um, yeah, it it, it is just important to always see every point of view. And I think um, it it often presents a different solution that may not have been visible if you you come in from a a single service or a single focus point of view. So uh, that's something that I I was uh, really attracted to in my policing time working in what was then called the... um, Interagency Tasking and Coordination Group, which was a, a model that was set up to make sure that different departments of government sat down regularly and met and talked about key issues for their regional and remote community right. and, uh, and, and included feedback from the community itself uh, to make sure that we were focusing on the right priorities and that we were uh, understanding how the community wanted us to respond I was really fortunate uh, when I was working in the Big Rivers area to get tasked to go and help set up one of those committees out in um, right. Actually, I think we set them up in a few places, but Borralula always sticks in my mind because we went out telling the community and, and the key groups out there, we want to set up this group so that we can work with you to kind of make this a better place. Mm. And we had in our mind that they might want to talk about things like uh, you know, break-ins or antisocial behaviour. And what they actually wanted to talk to us about was young people attending school. Right. And, and I kind of went, oh, okay, that's not exactly what I thought I'd be in here sharing a conversation about. But when we got down to it, um, they, the community perceived that they needed more help to get, to get kids into the school environment and for them to stay there. And so we had this whole different approach where we were actually helping with uh, business houses to get kids uh, um, up and out to school in the morning that we're making sure that the school was a safe environment during the day and and just really working in a different area than I had anticipated because uh, we opened our mind up to what everyone else actually was thinking.
0: And Brent, you know, as, as a uh, as a police officer, a person with with empathy, and and I guess a an open mind mindedness to um, to uh, different perspectives, and how to how to I guess work through issues. How do you how do you reconcile those competing? What appear to me to be competing objectives between having to enforce the law uh, when there is um, a need to go in and, and and take action when the law is being broken versus, I guess, working with the community and helping coach and uh, and assist them, as you've just described? Because it seems like they are two uh, potentially contradictory um, or two tensions within the role. You've got to enforce, and people know that the police are coming, maybe I'm in trouble, versus the police are coming, they're here to help. I think... Um... It
1: is it is a real challenge, and it's it's not restricted to the world of policing. I, I have to say that uh, different parts of government have got statutory obligations that they have to um, fulfil. Uh, if you think about the world of child protection, or if you think about um, you know even the world of liquor licensing, those kind of things, there's always a, 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 a um, accountability and enforcement component somewhere. I, I, my view is that. What we need to keep doing is if we're empathetic and thinking, where, where are the other people coming from here? Have we communicated effectively what, what's going on and why we're unhappy with the situation? That's always a huge, um, a huge factor in getting a good outcome. If there, there, are, there are always rules and expectations, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about a legal setting or just um, you know, community expectations or cultural expectations. There's always rules and expectations and accountabilities. And the more that we talk to each other about what, you know, making sure everyone knows what those accountabilities are and what we need to do to um, make things right, I, I, I think the more that people are satisfied with um, a process. And this this t- same logic applies even if you're working inside an organisation, working in a say a HR context where you're needing to um, work with employees that might. You know, there may be a disciplinary infraction or there may be some kind of uh, disagreement between staff. It it always comes down to communicating really well, um, listening really well and making sure that everyone's been heard um, so that when we get to the end of a process, everyone knows that they got heard and got listened to and they then understand why the decision makers got to their final decision.
0: Right. Yep. No, fair enough. And then you um, you get the call, presumably, to say that look, we've got a role in uh, Territory Families, which has um, incorporated housing and a number of other areas as well. a big A big agency that you're part of, an even bigger agency than it was before. And you get the call, presumably, saying, look, uh, you're the guy we want to be heading up the deputy CEO of housing operations. So, what, what was going through your mind when you got that call? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: probably a few different things the time. <laughs> What do they say about holding um, opposite competing ideas in your head all at yep. once? Yep. Um, look, I have to be really honest. My, my first thought was that's, that's an area of, uh, of government that I don't have a lot of direct experience in. Uh, that was my first thought. And then I stopped and kind of reconsidered in terms of the the roles i've had and the ty- and the clients that i've worked with and the yep. situations they were coming from and actually i've spent a lot of time working with people that have got a connection to the public housing system um for i guess in in uh in the in the different places i've worked within government when when you're in a place where you're working with vulnerable clients um, sadly, a lot of those clients are also accessing public housing network as part of the support system that's there to help them. And so there's actually a connection there. Then when you start to think about the, the research that we see from around the world about the value of, um, of safe and secure housing and, and the uh, trajectories that can follow for people, whether they, whether they have that type of accommodation or not, and actually, it's really obvious that a lot of the kind of uh, secondary and tertiary work that um, government and NGOs do with clients is all is all linked somewhere back to the housing system. So, I think I got to that point eventually. But yeah, definitely the first response was, oh, oh okay, um, that's that's a turn to the left that I wasn't expecting um, to make. Uh, but it's been it's been a ripper journey since then. Um, I think. I think uh, I, I can still acknowledge that there's so much I don't know about about the housing system. I'm still learning every day, but I've been really pleased with how um, open everyone in in the sector, both in the government and in the NGO sector, have been about kind of um, educate educating and bringing me along on the journey, and making sure that I knew what their point of view was about their part of the service system. So. Um, Yeah, so it's been a a different direction, but lots of similarities in the way that uh, you might run or put together a big system and the opportunities there are when you bring um, different service streams together in a larger organisation. I think um, there's definitely been some wins uh, for clients when we've started to look at people who might be living in a public housing context who might also have family support requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, who may be dealing with youth um, issues in their family network or in their family in in a home and actually going, have we thought about all of those issues together? and Have we thought about what order in which we should tackle them? Because in the past, we may have tackled the housing tenancy issue first when actually maybe we shouldn't tackle that first, we should tackle it second after we've done something else that sets that family up a bit stronger. Um, We've also been able to use the housing uh, system to support people who might have normally come to our attention in other parts of, uh, of our system. And, and the, the fact that we're able to manage the tenancy arrangements for our clients means that we can help them make decisions about different accommodation that actually might better suit their circumstance. And we've been able to help people um, perhaps manage the pressures of external family by um changing residences, for example, so that they're able to succeed with uh, other issues that they're working on um, Mm. to to do with their health or with their family. So, yeah, yeah, uh, there's a lot of connections once you start to look into it and a lot of synergies for us in this agency um, with the different streams of work that we do here.
0: Fantastic. It's not an easy gig, uh, housing and homelessness, uh, and neither with the previous roles you've taken on. And I'd imagine there's a fair element of dealing with... um, you know, the day-to-day crisis as well in, in housing. It's a very operational role. Do you, is that something that you relish? You're looking for those kind of roles where where you're able to, I guess, look at uh, responding to whether it be an emergency or, or something pressing operationally? There, there have to be a lot of that element to the role.
1: There certainly is. I, I'm not sure whether I, I relish it and go looking for
0: it or if it just seems to come to me. <laughs>
1: There's a word for people that have that experience. It's probably
0: not podcast. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, I remember with some roles, you know, you, you've got the the reading on your on your back shelf, and you're thinking, I'm going to get to that. I really want to read and learn, and then I think that's important. When I do that, but the, the day never seems to come. You know, it's a bit like yeah. that for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in my mind, I really um, find it important to get into the detail and understand the, the theory that sits behind the things that we do. And I, I spend a bit of time doing that in this role, but it always feels like it's not enough. I always feel like I'd like to know a bit more, a bit deeper. Mm. Um, but I guess the the, the 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 challenge is to make sure that you trust the people that work around you, whether they're sector partners or whether they're um, uh leaders within your team who are doing specific bits of technical work, you have to have a high level of trust that people are working um, with you, um, they're working for the right reason and they've got more expertise than you in the work they do and being able to let them feel safe enough to share their ideas and their points of view um, but also giving them um you know the the benefit of, of me being the kind of accountable officer uh, on those bigger decisions so yeah I, I always wish that I could spend a bit more time sort of reaching in and, and playing with the detail but uh, you're right it's a it is a busy operational role it's a busy operational agency actually if I could if I could say that and uh, my, my colleagues spent as much time as I do kind of dealing with the here and now as well as planning for the future um, yeah. and I do I guess you don't realize till you've been in it for one year or 10 years or 20 years, depending on which colleagues you're talking to, that that operational doing work actually builds up just as much um, important knowledge and experience as, as the things in the books on the shelf um, in, the, in the back of the office do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we need to make sure we value that kind of lived practical experience. I think um, I learned a phrase when I was doing some unI study academic. You know, people who, who like to uh, or who have some theoretical grounding but who are actually using their theory in practice in, in our operational world. And I, I like to think that we've got a bunch of academics working in the department who've got some strong theoretical underpinnings but are also out there testing things out, um, knowing that there will be um, mistakes or errors sometimes because when you're testing out new things, they don't always work, knowing that they've got the... Um, They've got the opportunity to recognise when it's not working right and change course and, and get on with it again. I think that's that's a really important thing for an operational team to know that you can't spend forever getting something perfect. You've got to make uh, you've got to make calls and get started, and then sometimes we have to recalibrate or, or adjust slightly once we're off on the mission um, to make sure that we've acknowledged new information that's come to light. So,
0: yeah, mm, it's, very interesting. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you, um, when you came into your role, uh, you've got a, a, a pretty big team um, working in housing operations. And um, what did you find? What were your initial impressions of the, of the group that you were leading?
1: Um, look, I think I was really, really lucky. I've got a, a strong group of people that have got a, a combined total of lots and lots of experience running a housing system. Uh, we've got people across our regional centres in the housing network who've been doing this work for a long time. Um, we're blessed with some people in our regional offices who've got lots of remote experience. Um, so working working in the running of public housing in remote Aboriginal communities as well as um, in the bigger urban centres. We've, we've got some people that have got um, deeper policy knowledge. We've also got people that have got sector knowledge who've worked in the sector and jumped back and forth between the government and the NGO um, world. So we've got, I guess I call them interpreters, people that make sure that we hear the message properly and that make sure our message gets shared back across in the way that it's intended, uh, which is really, really powerful. And then the other thing is uh, seeing different colleagues that actually move between different arms of government and change roles um, from time to time, who provide that kind of um, linking fibre between different different departments and different services so that we don't get the silos that sometimes happen in, in a government program and, and really give us that intelligence about what our partner government organisations are up to and how we can work with them to do it well instead of working against each other. So, um, yeah, we've yeah. got a good team in here who are really yeah. enthusiastic and experienced.
0: Fantastic. I, I like also to say, you know, we often um, hear about the things that aren't, don't go so well, and uh, at times, and but there, you know, there are people in there doing a lot of great work as well. It's important to to acknowledge that, and that it's not easy at times uh, either doing the doing the sort of things they are with with whether it be difficult tenants or other problems in the housing system, or just simply not enough cash to do the things in the way that they like to um, coming through. So I guess we've all got to work with what we've got.
1: Yeah. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think the other bit is, um, yeah, we find ourselves working um, a, a lot of the time with the, the clients and the situations that are most acute um, and that rightly takes up a big portion of our time and energy. I think I, I like checking back in from time to time about the fact that, you know, in a, in a public housing context, we've got X number of people in public housing and a lot of them are just um, getting along with their life and not and not needing extra supports. Uh, they're just um, looking after their family and managing their situation. And then there's a smaller portion that need more assistance for one reason or another. And, um, and we, we need, in, in our own minds, need to keep checking in about all those people that are just getting on and, and taking advantage of the, the support of the, the housing system. So, yeah.
0: Yep, and Brent, I know that obviously there's a housing. Uh, the, the agency has strategies, uh, the, the strategic plans, and and of course it, there's a housing strategy, a homelessness strategy, and a community housing growth strategy now. So there's a lot of strategic work in place. But but for you personally, what what do you want your legacy to be? And I guess what are some of your goals for your time in this uh, in this role? What would you be liking, wanting to achieve in your time there? Um, so
1: I think for me a big a big big focus is our remote housing construction program um, and whilst my team aren't doing the the building per se we work in lockstep with the department of infrastructure around identifying where houses should be built um, working with the community to figure out the style excuse me the style of housing and, and the allocation of housing and then once we get those new houses built or houses replaced getting, getting tenants in there. And so I, one of the things I'm really keen on being able to demonstrate over the next few years is, is, is just pulling down that overcrowding number so that we can actually show that we've got more people into better accommodation that meets the needs of their family and, um, and allows them to uh, have the foundation they need to be getting on with school, education, getting on with work, And just getting on with building their their family um, in a a safe way. So that's a a big goal for me is getting those um, overcrowding numbers down um, through good use of those new houses. I think the other thing um, which I have to mention is we're we're doing this um, exciting work around the community housing um, uh, transition and there is so much goodwill in the sector around jumping in and, and having a go at, um, at managing more of the housing that's currently in the public housing um, pool of stock. I, I think getting getting those um, agreements set up in a way that makes sense to the sector, that works for tenants um, and will ultimately show better outcomes for the community in, in those areas as well is going to be fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to being able to, sort of show that success of organisations growing with these stock transfers and um, not just building up their own kind of um, internal capability, but the the community in that area seeing the positive impact of them being involved. And then I think the last bit is we've got a real focus on staff development at the moment. Um, the, The agency Um, has had a view, certainly amongst the executive colleagues I work with, that we want to invest a a proper chunk in training and development leadership opportunities for our staff. And we've been really um, pushing that out to the staff that have joined in from the housing part of our amalgamated agency, making sure they've got access to frontline um, training uh, that, that really upskills them in their core roles. Um, making sure that we've got the right specialist training for people that do specialist roles. And one that comes to mind is our public housing safety officers. They need to do some special training to do that work. And then making sure that we've got all of the middle managers and leaders um, getting a chance to um, learn more about leadership, both through um, experience in different roles as leaders, but also through um, proper theoretical training. And then we're really working on getting um, mentoring and, and coaching uh, rolled out so that our staff can access that, self-reflect about how they work and how they want to lead, and then roll, and roll that into, into their work day to day. So that's probably the three things for me, that remote um, construction delivery, the community housing piece, and the, um, and the work that we're doing with our staff internally.
0: Terrific. Now, Brent, as we record this, we've just had estimates, hearings yesterday. We we do have urban um, wait lists are on the rise still. Um, nobody wants to see that happen, obviously. Yeah, but as uh, I'm just interested in your thoughts around um, the prospects from here, around turning that around. But given we've got, a, I guess now, a new federal government making noises about having a national housing and homelessness plan, uh, there's some home ownership um uh, Uh, models being developed uh, as well and being released. We've um, we've also got the community housing growth strategy, which will make a difference over time just to some extent. Um, You know, we don't have uh, like a a big philanthropic investor that's just going to... Sorry, it's an unlimited bucket of money. It's It costs money to, to build housing, but there are a number of things happening. Um, obviously, in the Territory as well, we've got a, a new Chief Minister, uh, which is always interesting if, if uh, her government has slightly different priorities around housing, especially, I guess, noting um, all the connections with health and education and justice that we talked about before. But I guess more on a national level and just your sense of where we're at at the moment, are you optimistic about the fact we can actually... Start to make some inroads into reducing our homelessness and in, in what's a very difficult environment at the moment with rising costs of fuel and energy costs and all sorts of other things. CPI, you know, inflation's going up. Are you, not, you seem like an optimistic person and a positive person. Are you are you feeling optimistic that we can turn this around, this growing problem of homelessness?
1: Um Yes, I am. I, I, I'm definitely optimistic that there's there's a number of tools and um, options that we're going to be able to bring to bear on the situation in the NT. I think everyone's aware from public announcements that the Australian government has committed um, to a range of things to kind of grow and support the, the whole housing continuum from, from um, one end to the other. Uh, I think... And I I think it's worth noting that in those broader commitments, the Northern Territory got specifically mentioned a couple of times. So there's some specific um, commitments around um, increasing the support for people who live on homelands, Um, and, and I think that's really important in a conversation about homelessness because we're really clear, and I think the sector's probably clear that people are experiencing homelessness or overcrowding because they're um, being pushed to move between locations Um, and the more that we can make homelands living a safe and secure um, option for people I think we'll see more people choosing to move back off of um, urban and remote public housing to go and uh, return to country and live on homeland. So that's going to have a big impact. I, I, I truly believe um, we've got, we've seen examples of this in homelands where we've uh, done upgrade projects. People have come back to live there. They want to live in, the, in their traditional country and uh, that takes some pressure off the other parts of the housing system. Um, we've got an opportunity, again, that the Australian government has expressed to negotiate an extension um, or uh, to the National um, Remote Housing Partnership Agreement, and that will mean that we can continue the work of making more accommodation available in remote communities for people that might otherwise be tending to gravitate towards town. And so those two steps take some pressure off of our urban network, um, which is then going to be supported by um, other parts of that new program that have committed to um, support people with affordable housing Um, and uh, that will feed into our network in our urban centres and and everything we do to increase the total amount of stock that's out there for for people to live in, the the more that we um, uh, we make housing accessible. I think that... Our work next year with the sector around deciding what a new homelessness strategy looks like is going to be informed by some of the things we're learning from the Australian government about these commitments they've made, but also informed by the things that we've learned about ourselves as a system um, through some of the review work that was done over the last two years, some of the things that we learnt from our COVID response. And I, and I think I, I have to acknowledge the, the great um, enthusiasm with which the housing sector stepped into what we call the welfare group response, and played a really important role in working with people that were vulnerable or homeless, um, in making sure they were safe from COVID. So we've got this new understanding about what works, and and I'm sure that if I don't uh, mention this now, you will. The um the the power of an outreach network that actually um have the skills but also the, the flexibility to get out in the field and talk to people where they are um, staying is is really important. It's something I want to see reflected in our new um, or refreshed strategy for um, tackling homelessness.
0: Good stuff. And, Brent, just one final question. Um, you know, we, we've been lucky to have you in the Territory all these years. You made a really... Uh, massive contribution in a, in a number of different roles and you bring a lot of ideas and thinking to the table. Hopefully we'll get to see you uh, here for a lot longer. But um, for those of us who are relatively new to the territory like myself, and we hear a lot about these boom-bust cycles and we hear a lot about the need to diversify our economy and get more housing and, and local decision-making. You Can you visualise that? Can you actually see a future in 10, 20, 30 years time where we can make really significant inroads in uh, remote housing and jobs in uh, in the regions uh, that are more sustainable?
1: Yeah, I absolutely can. And you accuse me of being um, eternally optimistic. I, that That's true, but I, I've lived in the territory for 37, 38 years now. So I'm not a local, but I've lived here for a little while. I, I grew up, my own children here in the Northern Territory and, um, and I've had the opportunity to move around and live in different parts. I've lived out in Arnhem Land, lived over in Groot Island. I've had a, a couple of opportunities to live down in Central Australia and in the Big Rivers region. And we absolutely see different parts of the, the Territory go through cycles where um, not just economic cycles but also, um, I think, uh, cycles of community coherence and, and strength of leadership. So we have um, times where we've got really strong local community leadership and we absolutely make leaps and bounds in terms of getting those communities um, locked in with um, new programs, um, responding well to things that already exist and uh, being able to map out their future because they've got those people that can um, walk, walk the leadership journey with, with government and the NGO sector. And then at other times, those people just aren't around yet, or the people that were leading have um, maybe moved on or sometimes passed away, and we just have a gap before the next people step in. Um, But those gaps are always filled. There's always someone else that comes forward. We've got um, an amazing uh, group of people in the local communities that have got the skills, experience, education, cultural knowledge to, to lead for their people and to communicate with government. We've got some amazing um, CEOs in our non-government and, and, and partner organisations that hold us accountable, but they also know how to negotiate with us to get a good outcome for both for both um, government and the and the provider. And you know, I think about some of the times I've spent in Tennant Creek negotiating with the the Jallala Curry crowd, just as an example. They've got. A really strong organisation it's had its ups and downs but they've got leadership in there they've got a strong um you know they've got strong long-term community members in their organisation who are speaking the vision they've got and they're getting there they're, they're um negotiating local decision making agreements getting government to the table and uh and starting to win opportunities for for their community so yeah i absolutely do see that it's a cycle. It's not just economic. It's also about um, leadership and and sort of human capital in the different places. But it's uh, it's there, and it's and the next generation's coming through. Um, and like I say, you know, my own kids have gone to school up here and stayed in the territory, and plenty of other people's children are, are doing the same thing, becoming young adults and and sharing what they've got with the community by staying here and living here and enjoying it.
0: So Brennan, I think that's really positive here. And we know very well, don't we, that we've got some real challenges with rough sleeping and visitors and um, a lack of housing. And um, we certainly don't want housing to be holding us back uh, from realising those aspirations. So very much look forward to working with you and and your team uh, and our members and thinking how can we uh, get some solutions to some of these challenges and ultimately get more housing than we had last year and the year before that. So Brent, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme. Thanks for joining us on the couch. And um, you've been listening to Brent Warren, who's the uh, Deputy CEO of... Uh, Territory Families uh, Housing Operations. So, Brent, thanks again for joining us. And um, do go onto our YouTube channel and and check it out if you missed any of this broadcast. And uh, keep tuned for the next one's coming through. So we'll leave it at that. Thanks again, Brent. And all the best. Cheers. Cheers. See you, mate.
1: You've been listening to Episode 3 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.